All right, why don't you guys go ahead and grab a seat. If you read ahead to 1 Corinthians 11, you already had your opportunity to run out of here. Um, so we are, uh, we are here. Um, if you are new, uh, if you've not been part of our church for a length of time, uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And what we do as a practice, as a church, is preach right through books of the Bible. And so um, we have been preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians, a letter that Paul wrote to a church uh, since uh, January, actually. And last week, if you were here, Sam closed out chapter 10 with just an awesome sermon with one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. And it was fantastic. And it's online, uh, and it's available uh, for you to listen to. Uh, And so I encourage you to do that. Sam thought the sermon was awesome enough that he said... I can't follow that up. I'm going to take a couple weeks off. And he said, Chris, why don't you go ahead and do 1 Corinthians 11? And so we came to 1 Corinthians 11, and um, it is a challenging text. And so one thing I want us to have uh, an understanding of when we come to a text like this is that we are not unbiased, neutral judges. Okay? We are individuals and we are a society or a culture or a group of people that live in a specific time and a specific place and that can lead us to certain prejudices or certain preconceived notions about what is right and what is wrong. And the challenge with that is, is it creates blind spots um, uh, to really be able to hear what words that Paul wrote to a church 2,000 years ago, half a world away, are trying to communicate to us as a body of believers across all cultures, across all time. And so we have to remember, before I I read this, that this is one small section of a comprehensive and and robust letter um, that, that tells a lot of theology about who God is and how we are to respond. And that letter is... Uh, within an entire volume of the Bible that unpacks this big story of a big God doing big things to redeem a fallen world. So, so let's take that big, let's drill down here, you know, down to the, the nitty gritty, and let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 2, and we're going to go through uh, verse 16. Now I commend you because... You remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covers dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, which is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is in the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman from man. Or for for man, rather. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman wears, uh, has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is God's word. Amen. Anyone want to trade jobs with me this morning? Yeah. Sam always gives me the fun ones. All right. I I want us to be clear. This is one of the most difficult and controversial texts in the entire New Testament if not the whole Bible. And there are, there are whole Christian traditions who in their church calendar read through the entire New Testament in their public services over the course of a couple of years, and they skip this text. Okay? There are faithful Christian traditions that, that use this text as prescriptive to insist that women wear head coverings in their services. I will say, if you have a Bible app, 
None of these verses ever come up on the verse of the day. The computer program says, uh-uh, not giving that one out as verse of the day. Never seen anyone share this on Facebook ever, right? It is a challenging, challenging text. And, and honestly, I can understand why. I, I, I have spent hours literally hours this week in study and in preparation trying to find out what this text says in history and for all time and, and what is useful to us. And, and there are difficult things to try to understand this text. There are even things that, that men much, much smarter than I who write these commentaries I say, I don't know. I don't know what to do with that. And, and yet, because of that, I think it's easy for us to look at a text like this and say, okay, there's enough confusion in here that we can't really use it for doctrine or teaching. And certainly, we're not going to use it to say anything about the relationship between husbands and wives in a corporate worship service. And I think that absolutely would be a mistake. It would be an error because some things in this section are incredibly crystal clear. And so, we may not personally like what it has to say, but what our attitude towards and our use of the Bible is, is important. We have to ask ourselves, are we going to let culture or our individual opinions or our experience be ultimate authority, or are we going to let God's word be what it claims to be as an authority over our lives if we are to be Christians? And so um, Paul later tells Timothy, um, uh, in instructing him how to deal with things like this, he says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So our challenge this morning is to see within this text what is there that can teach us about how to be more righteous as we live out lives of righteousness given to us by the perfectly righteous Jesus Christ. And as if it's not difficult enough, you even have another guy, Peter, who was Jesus' best friend for three years and was one of the first leaders and founders of the church. He writes in Second uh, Peter 3, uh, in talking about what Paul writes, and I'm, I'm guessing he might be talking about this text. He said, Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks um, of them in these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So even Peter, who spent three years walking next to Jesus, says, some things Paul says, I just don't understand. So that's okay. It's okay to not understand some things, but before, but, but there are things, like I said, that are clear. And so before we can dive into what this text is trying to teach us here today, we have to understand what it's saying, and who it's saying it to, and why. And so Paul opens this section of Scripture in verse 2, and he actually commends the church in Corinth, which is something he does not do often in the letter, but he commends them for maintaining certain teachings or traditions that he has taught them and passed uh, along to them. And so he is commending them specifically for the simple act of gathering together for a worship service, just like we have today. He says, it is great you guys are getting together and you're singing praises to God. It is great that you are getting together and praying to God. It is great that you are getting together and people are standing up and prophesying, which means saying, this is what God's teaching me through his Holy Spirit. This is what he's telling me through his word. It's not saying, hey, the world's going to end in six days. It's, it's a little different than that. And he says, and it's good that you're coming together to hear faithful men come and preach the gospel. He said, but there are some things in this service that are absolutely troubling and need correction. And so actually we're going to spend kind of the next few weeks going through what some of those things are. But specifically, um, here, he's saying that, yeah, there's parts of this service that are troubling. And so apparently, where we've come out of this section of Corinthians where there's a lot of Christian liberty and a lot of Christian freedom displayed, apparently, even within that freedom and liberty, worshiping a crucified and risen Jesus Christ, that there is still supposed to be some order and, and some guidelines and some structures in place on what that looks like. And so he talks about specific, minute details of hairstyles and head coverings in this service. And so we can get bogged down on those type of details. And, and I'm not going to be able to answer every question that you may have about this text, but, but he's saying... Um, that, that the details actually do matter. 
And so we have to understand that this church in Corinth was a gathering of believers that was made up of Greeks and of Romans and of Jews, and they all had their worship practices from before they were Christians. For the Romans specifically, when they would come into a pagan worship service to sacrifice to one of their pagan gods, they would literally take part of their toga and put it over their head in a covering so as to appear like a woman in the service. And Paul says, don't do that. The, the, the Jewish men in their services would wear a head covering as well. And he says, no, we are not under that old covenant. We are under a new covenant. You are under Christ, man, and so you are to worship him in such a way that is different. And so please don't wear that head covering any longer. And across whatever religion they came from, the role of the women in the service was almost non-existent or at the very best um, just kind of, kind of put to the side. For the Jewish women, it meant they were to absolutely remain silent during the service. They had no role within the service. There was even a curtain that separated the men and the women so as to not intermingle and and to show that, okay, the women are not a valuable or an active participant in this service. Paul says, no, that's, that's not the way things are supposed to be. We're all supposed to come together as vibrant participants. It was beautiful standing or sitting up front and hearing many people singing together today because we're all participating. And so that's how things kind of were in their churches. But in public society, just every day, walking around the market, um, going from house to house, going to their place of businesses, um, that, that the most significant way they could distinguish themselves was actually by, by how they wore their hair, men and women. Because actually, if you think about it, the, the clothing of the day was just kind of like a toga or like a robe. It was very similar to each other. So the men are wearing robes, the women are wearing robes, and the way in public society you displayed your maleness or your femaleness had specifically to do with how you wore your hair. If you were a guy, you'd cut it short. Maybe you'd even grow some facial hair. If you were a woman, you would have it long, and it would be uh, maybe put up in, in some sort of a bun or something like that and have some little covering over it, particularly if you were married. Because that was actually part of your wedding ceremony was having your hair up and, and having it covered and showing um, some respect to your husband and to your marriage um, in that way. And so when the church gathered together for the purpose of worshiping together, they didn't dress up for service. And honestly, here in the Northwest, we don't really do that too much either. Right, But there wasn't Sunday best back then. They just showed up the way they normally were. And so for women, normal was to come in, hair up and covered. Men, hair short. That was normal. Okay, Even within that pagan society. And according to the reports, though, that Paul heard, he said during the service, women were getting up to pray or say what they thought the Lord was teaching them, which is a good and right thing. Oftentimes we'll have women here lead worship. They'll pray. They will, they will say, here's what God's been teaching me through his word today. And that is a good and wonderful thing. But for these women, it was, it was an awesome thing for them because they got to participate in a service. And that was new and unique for them. Like I said, in their society, they really didn't have a voice except in this service. And so in their excitement as they're trying to express some equality and some liberty in their excitement, they would uncover or let down their hair. Which again, the fact that Paul's even addressing this in a letter seems odd to us. Because having long hair or short hair or having your head covered or uncovered doesn't communicate anything to us. Right? It really doesn't. I don't, we don't get, usually get bothered with, regardless of what people's hair length is. But... In that culture and in that context, it absolutely communicated something. And for the women, as they let their hair down, intentionally or not, and it, it seems like it actually may be intentional, what they were doing was actually identifying themselves as a prostitute by letting their hair down. Or as very, at the very least, a single woman with, with loose morals and, and, and not a godly, respectful, Christ-exalting wife. And so, it would be the same thing, honestly, as if my wife came up here and just like grabbed the microphone away from me and like chucked her wedding ring across um, the, uh, the room here. Or, or, or similar to what was happening in the 70s, right, when there was a lot of bra burnings and things of that nature. It was considered a radical act. 
It's not radical for us. It doesn't communicate anything for us. Head coverings don't communicate anything in this culture, which is specifically why as a church we don't ask the women to wear head coverings. It doesn't communicate the same thing it did then. But what they were doing in enjoying some liberty, they had actually gone beyond what was even acceptable in their pagan culture. And so these women had actually become a distraction in the service. And they became a distraction because they were publicly humiliating their husbands. They were, they were upsetting the design and intention that God had for the relationships between men and women in marriage and in the life of the church. And so what they were doing wasn't progressive sign of equality to be celebrated, but instead what they were doing was disgraceful and needed to be corrected. And so as Paul's, again, addressing a specific issue in a specific time in one church, there are several foundational truths for all churches across all times. And so our applications of these truths is going to vary from culture to culture, right? Sometimes for men, long hair is good, sometimes short. Sometimes there's a lot of different styles. You go back in, into like the 1770s, guys are wearing wigs and have tights. You wear a wig and tights now, I'm probably going to look at you a little differently, Right? Braveheart wears a kilt, awesome. I wear a skirt now, not as good, right? There's just there's cultural differences of, of what masculinity and femininity is, but the importance of the spirit behind these principles is unchanging and timeless. The, the, the heart doesn't change, because God doesn't change. And so there's, there's five points I have t- today. We'll work right through them. But point number one, if you are taking notes, and again, man, for the kids, I love how Sam says, this is the week where you can write feedback on the sermon and put it in the offering. He never announces that when he's up there. Um, you know, kids can draw pictures, I guess, of head coverings. or Okay, well, let's leave that one alone. So um, point number one, men and women are under authority. We are not the supreme beings of the universe, right? We are not the apex of some evolutionary process. There is a God who is bigger and more powerful than we are. And because he is so big and so powerful and so unsearchable, at certain things about God are mysterious. We will not understand them on this side of eternity. But there are certain things of God that are orderly and clear. And so we need to be able to find what those are. And so verse 3 lays out clearly how God has used the authority that he has and distributed it in such a way to accomplish his purposes. So you look at verse 3 and it says, God the Father is the authority over God the Son. And yet they're, they're equal. The Son, Jesus Christ, says perfectly and willingly and joyfully submits to the will of the Father, all the way to the cross. You can't submit any more than the cross. And God as well, he says, has designed marriage to reflect this model of authority with the husband as the head of his wife. Even me just saying that is difficult for us to hear because in our society, our greatest value right now, because they change, is equality. And so we reject anything we don't understand that may seem to contradict that value. But the Bible doesn't lay things out that way. Paul says very clearly in Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 25, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. He says, husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so we even see this idea of husband as head or his headship or authority is one of sacrificial, self-giving love. And you look through the scriptures, there are very few biblical guidelines for wives. While husband's responsibilities to his wife and to his family and to his church and to his city are numerous and detailed. And so men as husbands, all of us men, as if you're a husband, we need to, to honestly raise our game. We need to consistently step up, not in domination of or control over our wives, 
but in humbly challenging ourselves to love our wives more sacrificially as God has absolutely called us to do. And so this, and in that, in loving sacrificially, that is how now we display that we are under God's authority as men and as husbands. Head coverings, hairstyles aside. And so wives, conversely, they show that they recognize God's authority in their lives by submitting to their husbands. See, the women in Corinth had publicly rejected their husband's authority over them in this service by how they wore their hair. And in doing so, they were rejecting God's um, authority over them. Saying, God's laid it out a certain way and you're just rejecting that. And so it was shameful. Paul says in verse 5, it was as if their head was shaved. See, to have your head shaved as a woman in in that culture was very specific. Because there was only one of two options if you had shaved your head in that culture. You were either a slave and somebody else's property, or you had committed adultery and they wanted to make your shame visible. And so their actions... We're not symbols of liberty or of willing submission to the Lord, but of, of bondage of sin. I don't know if that necessarily communicates the same thing today, but I do know even just going back as, as, as far as, as you know, back in World War II, I, I love watching series like Band of Brothers. And there's, there's one episode where the Americans have come in um, to, to the Netherlands, I believe, and they are liberating a town. And there's this very disturbing scene where this woman is dragged into the middle of the, of, the, of the town square and they shave her head. And it looks so demeaning. And the soldiers go to the townspeople and say, what have you done? And they said, oh, she was a collaborator with the Nazis. We wanted everyone to know she's identified with evil and not with, with us. And so what, what these women were doing, thinking they're showing some liberty or some equality, was, was actually showing that they are slaves to sin and identifying themselves with the enemy of the creator. And so they weren't acting as daughters of the king, but they're acting as daughters of Eve, who God said because of sin, because Eve rejected God's authority, rejected her husband's authority, God says in Genesis 3, your desires shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. What that means actually is that because of sin, sin causes wives to want to take their husband's office or their role or his authority and, and, and in a dominating way. And the men, the men will respond to that. And they'll either respond sinfully by asserting dominance or by sinfully submitting to their wives where God has called them to lead. And so both the wives' rejection of her husband's authority and the husband's um, uh, abdication or rejection of his authority or his abuse of his authority are ultimately a rejection of God's authority who has, as the creator, made them men and women, husband and wife. And so our first question as a people, men and women, husbands and wives, do your actions or do your attitudes show God and show others that you are ultimately someone that is under authority? Or do your actions and attitudes within your marriage, within the church, within your lives, show that you've rejected authority and that you have no higher authority but yourself? Okay. Point number two. Men and women are created distinct. So throughout this text, there, there are numerous distinctions made across gender lines. Most of them, as we said, they are culturally specific and don't necessarily apply today. Um, but all of them point back to God as a creator who cre- is a creator of distinctions. He makes things different. Well before sin enters the world, when God perfectly designed the world, it says in Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Note, there are only two genders listed. Just two. God did not create us to be unisex 
or, or transsex. He made us male and female. And I even have to explain that. I mean, right now in, in, in the Portland public school districts, they are trying to eliminate boys' bathrooms and girls' bathrooms and just having unisex bathrooms in the name of equality. I can think of nothing more demeaning to a woman than to have to go into a men's room, okay? We don't treat them the same as the ladies treat the ladies' room, okay? That is, there's nothing good or right or just about that. But unfortunately, because of sin, because we reject a, a creator who made us distinct, sin has corrupted this. And God's perfect design for hum- humanity is in two distinct genders, has been kind of rejected. And so some individuals, some subcultures, and, and even at points, some societies have, have from time to time rebelled against just this very notion or concept that men and women, males and females, are created fundamentally different. This is a relatively new problem. Within, the, within my lifetime, within most of our lifetimes, this has, has, um, has shifted. And, and I had to look on when this was. It was actually 20 years ago. Which means this has been a problem for a little while. But 20 years ago, Time Magazine, back when people read magazines, they were like made out of paper, right? Um, had on the cover, a, a cover story that said, new studies show males and females are actually born different. Because that was a question. They had to like hire some people to see if they're they actually different because our society for a generation before that had just said, no, it's all just cultural. It's all just societal. No. God made them male and female. He made them different and unique and distinct. But unfortunately now in this society, as we're Christians going into the world, we can't just assume that people accept that. You may even say you're hateful for just saying something like that. Men and women are different. And so... Every culture, though, does have its unique ways of displaying and denoting masculinity and femininity. Like I said, those, those, they vary. They're, they're different. But, but, but there are cultural symbols. And, and so for us, if we're going to be faithful Christians to, to a God who created us male and female, and we want to seek to acknowledge that God made us male or female or masculine or feminine, we actually have to look to culture and see what are those cues that show people around that we believe in maleness and femaleness and, and actually maybe have to adhere to some of them. This doesn't mean we have to dive into every stereotype. right? I don't care if you put sugar in your coffee, if you're a guy or, or, or whatever, and we talk about goofy things like that. Um, but I will say when, when I had my black dark roast Starbucks coffee this last week with no cream and no sugar, and they put on a pink sleeve with some French writing on it, Something in me said that wasn't right. And so I took it off and put on a brown one and said, my black coffee doesn't like this girly sleeve, right? When you watch the NFL and you see them running around with pink gloves for like a whole month, you're like, okay, breast cancer is a problem, but so is football players wearing pink, right? right? But that communicates something to us. It just doesn't seem quite right. Again, you can, you can go crazy on some of this stuff, right? But the, 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 the big idea is we need to be able to look for faithful Christians, male and female. And so even um, uh, at, at that time, it says that um, there was some visible cues. It even says like, wow, looking to nature, God's made us differently enough that there might be some visible ways. And so it says even particular hairstyles in verse 13, that for some women are glorious and for men are shameful. And it says, hey, you're just made different. Women have longer hair, but men have hair everywhere else, Right? Even, the, even in, in a Roman context, a, a pagan Roman noticed this and he said, can anything be more useless than the hairs on, on the chin? This does not serve a purpose up here, right? He says, except, well, what then? Has not nature used even these in the most suitable way possible? He says, has she, worships a different God, not made these means to distinguish between men and women? Even the pagans of that day said, yeah. We're different. We need to look different and, and carry ourselves different. And so the, what the women in Corinth were doing in publicly rejecting their husbands 
was apparently flagrant enough rejection of their just overall femininity that Paul tells them they can either choose to cut their hair short, which for them literally did identify themselves as male publicly, or are they going to embrace their God-ordained femaleness by visibly embracing culturally appropriate feminine appearance? And for them specifically, it was a symbol of their marriage to wear a head covering and have their hair up. And this is important. It's not important because visible distinctions are important on their own or that we have to be beholden to every societal stereotype, but because of how our outward actions or appearance actually reflect the inward orientation of our hearts. Not everything you do outside matters, but it matters in as much as it's showing where your heart is at. And so for the same reason, the text reminds the men that they are to absolutely avoid appearing or carrying themselves in a way that is culturally feminine or female. He says, because it is disgraceful to deny men your God-given masculinity. And because God has authority over all these things, including our gender, Christian men are to show their inward submissiveness to his authority by outwardly embracing their maleness in how we appear and more specifically how we act. And what that means specifically is that men lead, men initiate, men cultivate, and men serve within the context of their marriage in the context of their home, in the context of their business or, or where they work, or, or, or in the context of the church, um, absolutely, and in the community, to be sure. And so sitting back or avoiding responsibility or failing to speak or act where, where, where God has commanded you to is not biblical masculinity. It is biblical infantilism. Men were to be men, not children. We are to lead and cultivate and serve. And so the question I have for us now, men and women, husbands and wives, do your actions and do your attitudes. Show God and show others that you see yourself as a distinct creation. Point number three. Men and women are created equal. Something can easily be missed in this text, and that is that this text, yes, even this text, as odd as it may sound, shows some radical gender equality that we need to be able to see and lift up and hold up. See, Paul, when he's writing to this church, he anticipates a common error that we all make when we see distinctions. Right? He's made men and women distinct. And so we assume naturally that if something is different or distinct, that naturally, that it must naturally be better than, or worse than something else. And as, as he's giving some very clear instructions on the authority of marriage and, and roles of gender and, and conduct within the church, Paul wants to make sure, I want us to make sure, that we don't wrongly lead to an assumption of, of some sort of inequality. That... Or, or wrongly assume something like male superiority. This actually has been a common problem throughout generations. And it manifests itself today, specifically in, in, in several ways. Um, I don't know that it's as big a problem here in the U.S., but certainly uh, it manifests itself in places as governmentally oppressive as China, where they have a one-child policy. And because they have a one-child policy, that society has decided that the men, male boys, are more important than the female boys, uh, babies. And so they, their birth rates are so skewed that there is an epidemic in China of way too many men and not enough women for marriage and for society in general. And it has led to some brokenness. And we say, okay, yeah, that's China. Okay, they're really culturally repressive. All right, let's go, let's swing the whole pendulum over to a place like France, right? You can't get more societally progressive or liberal or, or feminist or affirming than a place like France, where generations ago, women marched and said, we will show our equality in being able to have authority over the, whether the children in our womb live or die. You will give us that right to choose. 
And what has happened now in France two generations later is that French women have made their choice, and they like their baby boys more than their baby girls. And so France has an epidemic of gender-specific abortion. And so those same feminist females are now marching and saying, save the girl babies in the womb. In religions, this happens. You go to a very Islamic country like Saudi Arabia, and the women cannot drive. Many cannot be educated, and they certainly have no uh, role of authority or equality within society. You look even in our country, um, in, in places like fundamentalist um, Mormon uh, complexes and, and, and cult areas, where multiple, or one or few men will have multiple wives that they treat as their property, including young teenage girls, because they value men over women. This is a result of sin. This is not a result of the gospel of Jesus Christ that makes us as new creations who are equally valuable as image bearers of God. Paul says very clearly in Galatians 3.28, he says, there's no more distinctions. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are a Christian and identify yourself with Jesus, there's not inequality. There's absolute equality as we all identify with Christ. We're still distinct, but we're equal. And so I want all of us in this room and in this world to know that faithful Biblical Christianity for generations has been and will continue to be a force that frees women from servitude and oppression. And so Christians should not accept a charge from the unbelieving world that the Bible teaches or mandates or endorses or encourages male dominance or a low view of women. It's just not true. And so... Biblical male headship is not a mandate for male oppression. Women are created in the image of God. Men have no greater worth because of their God-given responsibility to lead. Distinct does not mean inferior. You can be distinct and equal simultaneously. So the authority of man doesn't make him superior. And and, and again, going back to verse 3, Paul points back, to the relationship in the Trinity between God the Father and Jesus Christ as God the Son to show these guys, they are absolutely both equally God and every Christian accepts that. And yet, it says God the Father has some authority over God the Son. And Jesus is no less equal because of that. It just has to do with different roles. And so from creation... Both men and women are created equal as image bearers of God. And as Christian men and women, as new creations in Christ, we are equal. But in that society, in Roman and Jewish culture, women were societally worth less than men. And now they're becoming, have become Christian brothers and sisters who are equal. And yet distinct in the eyes of the Lord. And they're equal because both have authority over them. This text makes that clear. Both of them have gender distinctions to be maintained. There are things that men need to do and things that women need to do. There are roles that need to be fulfilled. And additionally, like I said, unlike any other religions practiced in that day or really even today, both men and women have a vibrant role and responsibility to pray and share God's word with the congregation while maintaining God-given order. And so, women were never told, sorry, women were not told to never speak. But they were told to do so in a way that both acknowledges and respects the relationship they have with their husbands and God and the authority God has given to their husbands in the family and as men in the family of families, the church. And so, under God's authority, men and women are made distinct, yet absolutely equal. 
And so our question here is then, men and women, husbands and wives, do your actions or attitudes show God and others that you see each other as equal creations? Or do you somehow see the other gender as less than? Right, we know that, that men sometimes naturally um, recoil at things that seem uh, masculine or, or feminine, rather. But we also know, I mean, an issue in our society today is, is a reduction of masculinity as something that's less than. You see this so clearly in popular culture. I watched this happen in my lifetime. When you just think of something as simple as what you see family look like on television. Growing up, right, there was, if, you're, if you're really old, maybe you had Leave it to Beaver, right, or Father Knows Best. Can you imagine a show titled Father Knows Best today, right? You have the Brady Bunch. Well, let's move on from that, okay. Um, you, you, you know, you get into the 80s, right, and there's, there's growing pains, you know. Dad's a, a good dad. And then something happened in the late 80s. You meet a guy, Tim the Toolman Taylor, Right, Home Improvement, does anybody remember that show? Oh, he was masculine, right? Sports, uh, 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 he, he had, a, had a good job, uh, he, he was a real man's man, and he was an idiot, and he was a fool. And that father did not know best. In fact, the mother was the only one keeping anyone from not getting their arms cut off with a buzzsaw, right? And then it just shifted from then on. Homer Simpson, right? You got Peter Griffin now, family guy. All funny shows, right? But find one good dad on TV. This is why we don't look to culture to define what biblical masculinity is and what what male and female roles look like. That's why we look to this word right here because this doesn't change. Okay. Last two points. Getting close here. Men and women are dependent. They're dependent on one another and they're dependent on God. So we're distinct, we're different, we're equal. But this equality should not lead us to greater independence of the world, um, the way the world would define it, rather. Right? The world always sees equality or more liberty as an opportunity to be more independent. Okay? Sin separates. The gospel unites us together and brings us back together. And so we don't celebrate independence with more liberty and equality. We celebrate greater interdependence. It means we actually rely on one another. We share and celebrate and participate in interdependence of one another. Husbands and wives specifically are to live in total in interdependence of one another as God has designed. They are dependent on one another and are to complement one another. They even cover and fulfill each other's insufficiencies. See, acknowledging your equality and acknowledging your distinctness, you're going to acknowledge some of your insufficiencies, that you're not good enough to fulfill the roles God has given you. God says you need to be able to help one another and work together. And so it says men and women are so closely knit together. It says they're so closely knit together. It says that she is his glory. A wife is her husband's glory. Think about what that means for a second means that husband, if he's married, cannot be glorious without his wife. This was so clear to me this last Tuesday. I I met and talked with a a newer couple to our church, and I've met them several times and talked to them quite a bit. And the husband just goes, who's your wife? And I was like, oh, you don't really know me unless you know my wife. Because we're one flesh. We're independent or interdependent of one another. All the best things about me are displayed in her and vice versa. We need each other. We love each other. She's here, so I have to look it up. All right. But what this means is that he is for her and she's for him. And so this means that neither gender can boast over the other because we need each other. Verse 8 says this clearly, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So, so man needs a woman if he's married. And it says, but verse 12 says, husbands have no advantage over their wives just because Adam was created before Eve. Because all men since Adam have been born of a woman. Right? All of us. We all came from a woman. 
So just in God in his design of simple biology says, you're both coming from the same place. You're going to be biologically equal. You're going to have biologically the same source so that you understand that, yes, you're distinct. And yes, you're equal, but you, you need one another for life to continue. God created men and women to share in equality. As well, God is the ultimate source of all things, including men and women as male and female. He's the source of the type of relationships they're to have with one another, whether that's his spouses, or whether that's his brothers and sisters in Christ. And so all aspects of our relationships, all aspects of birth, of married life, of family life, of church life, of societal life, are all designed and given to us by God. And so we need to rely on each other and be dependent on each other as spouses, specifically, but as brothers and sisters in Christ as as well, as we gather as as a body of believers, because it's essential. We're not made to be alone. And, and, and so in doing so, in coming together and relying on each other, which, yes, is absolutely vulnerable because we have the opportunity to fail one another and we will fail each other. So we look to the grace of God. But in, in humbly relying on each other and not being independent, we're preaching something. We're preaching something to each other. We're preaching something to the world around us. And ultimately, um, we're reflecting back to God that we are dependent on him and trusting him because we're going to relate to each other, not based on our own personal desires, not based on societal or cultural norms, but we are going to trust and rely foremost on God's divine design for how we are to be. So our last question is, men and women, Husbands and wives, do your actions and attitudes show God and show others that you are dependent on God for all things and that you're humbly willing to depend on others for your life? And the last point, men and women are worshipers. The whole context of this text is people coming together It's a church service to worship. And so we even have to ask ourselves, what is the purpose in us gathering together in a public worship service? Literally, specifically, think into your own heart. Why are you here right now? Are you hoping to get something? Are you hoping to consume something? Or are you you hoping to learn more about and possibly have an encounter with Jesus Christ? The living God of the Bible who through all things were created and through all things are sustained by the power of his will? Or are you somehow here to glorify yourself like the women in Corinth who wanted all the attention drawn to them rather than to the cross? That's the point. That's why he's talking about it in, 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 a, in a cultural or in a service context because we were created absolutely under authority, created equally, created distinctly, created to be dependent on one another, but we were absolutely created for a purpose. And the whole tenor of Scripture is clear that that purpose is to glorify God in heaven and enjoy Him forever. That's why we exist. And so we are worshipers. And we have we failed to do that. We will continue to fail that purpose. So as Christians, we aren't religious. We love the gospel. Because what that means is that we are completely dependent on the grace and mercy of God in our failures. And this is why as Christian men and women, we worship Jesus, not maleness or femaleness. We worship Jesus. And because... We worship Jesus because that's how God shows mercy. That's how he shows grace. He shows it to us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who Philippians says, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus' highest value wasn't his equality. It says, but he made himself nothing. There's no greater distinction than between God and humanity. He made himself nothing, 
taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, verse 8 says, and being found in human form, as if that wasn't humble enough, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. To worship God, we look to the cross. And so when we hear difficult and challenging culturally words, particularly for the wives, the women, wives in particular, though, I want you to know no act or attitude of reasonable submission to your husband will ever compare to the pain or the humiliation that Jesus endured on the cross so that you could be free to live as God has intended you to be in relationship with and under authority of your husband. And men, husbands in particular, no act of provision or leadership or protection will ever compare to what Jesus perfectly accomplished on the cross for his bride, the church, so that we could live a life of self-sacrificial love for our brides, giving up our lives for them. And as a body of believers, all of us together, we worship the crucified and risen Jesus Christ as men and women created for God, created by God, giving glory to God by being what God has called us to be, male and female. And so I'm going to pray. And we're going to come forward and we're going to take communion. We're going to take the cup and the bread and remember Jesus humbling himself and submitting himself to the Father on the cross. And we are going to give our tithes and offerings recognizing that God has authority over every aspect of our lives, including our gender and including our checkbook. And we are going to sing. And we are not going to sing with one monotone, unisex voice, but we are going to sing as a diverse choir of men and women giving praise to our Father in heaven.